This is Anchor's Freaks and Dreams. I'm your host, Matt Purdue. Welcome back, guys. This is Anchor's Freaks and Dreams podcast. And today, I want to discuss something I would call creative opportunity. And if it didn't start out, I was just going to kind of do it as a normal... Um, practical way of looking at things, a practical approach to to change. Uh, but I think what I what do want to do is, I, I there's just so much in the Bible about creative change or a recreation, if you will, that I thought that I would highlight this because, you know, if you if you don't believe in God, it doesn't matter, I suppose. But if you do, then it very much does to understand the way God does things principally based, generally speaking, over the course of time, what God consistently does. I think it's it's incredibly valuable. So what I want to talk about is this this kind of proclivity of God in his, the way he designed certain things and the way he's continually redesigning. Not in a chaotic way, but just in a way of God believes in fresh starts. And if we look at, we'll just look at the Old Testament and we'll look at what God did. And he's the, he's starting with creation in general. So out of nothing, he's creating something. And then, of course, there's the fall and mankind spirals into chaos. And then there are actually getting so off base that they're starting to intermix with like spiritual beings at some level. And, and God's like, you know what? This was, <laughs> this went off the rails. <laughs> so he's like, I'm going to start over. And there's the flood. So another recreation. And so this seems to be going better because now you have just men that are left over instead of these um, part spiritual beings, maybe monsters, I'm not sure. That is, uh, you know, Genesis, the first few chapters, is, um, is hard to, it's hard to get a beat on. But either way, whatever it represents, it's representing a recreation, a fresh start. And then God takes Abraham, and this is where the chosen people of God begins. And he says, you live in this city or civilization called Ur, which apparently it was around Kuwait, around the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates River. And he says, I want to take you to a new place. We're starting over, but you can't do it here. You're going to start, I'm going to show you the stars of the heaven and your descendants will be as such. I'm going to show you the sand on the seashore and your descendants will be as much. Try and count them, Abraham. Try and count them. But your descendants will be as such. Which is, even now, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, I, I don't, like there are more stars in the heavens than you can count. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that he takes Abraham to 
Canaan, Canaan, which is, you know, he goes, if you know anything about geography, he takes them up through what they will call the Fertile Crescent and back down into the current land of, of Israel. And, and Abraham settles there. This is a recreation. It's a new, it's a new start. And then there's another one. Guess what? Joseph. And it's uh, Abraham's great grandson, I believe. And he, uh, you know, the, he, his brothers try to get rid of him. And he ends up being the, <laughs> the leader of, of the greatest con- empire in the world in Egypt, right? And so he, they resettle his family in, in Goshen or Goshen. Um, and Egypt in a fertile area and they grow like spring weeds and so it's a re- it's a fresh start in a new land in a, in a fertile land and then of course that time it's like 400 years later and then there's the persecution and guess what this is Moses this is the exodus God starts over again leads him through the Red Sea Guess what? They screw it up. And God's like, um, okay, we're going to have to start over. And so it's just tough, but God says, um, I'm going to not, I can't take you into the land right now because you're not ready for it. But in time, we're going to start over. So then he does what? Takes him across the Jordan. And here's an interesting difference is that sometimes when we don't think that we're growing, we actually are maturing on the inside. So the Israelites were forced to go through the Red Sea the first time. They were backs were pinned against the wall. The Egyptian army was about to crush them. So they were forced through it. But now they're led by their priests through the Jordan. They want to go in the promised land. The, the Israelites didn't want to go into the wilderness. They're like, man, well, let's just go back to Egypt where we had onions and leeks. <laughs> we don't want to die in the desert. But God knew they needed a fresh start. They couldn't stay in Egypt. And now they had to go through a trial. Now they're ready to enter the promised land. It's a fresh start again. They go into the promised land. I'll move this along. So they're in the promised land and it goes off the rails for them again. They get taken into captivity, into Babylonian captivity. And God says, we're going to start over again. And um, the I think it was probably Cyrus, the, the king of Persia, says, I've, um, I've, I've declared that the, the, the Jews, the Hebrews can go back to their, their land of origin that we took them from. And and then I think with Ezra and Zerubbabel and maybe Nehemiah, I, I'd have to go back and reread it. They, they went back and they repopulated um, Israel. So what you see is, is that I think that it's a good representation of a normal human being. There's You're born and then something happens to you or you screw something up and then you know now you're subject to some other mess 
And then God says, okay, we're starting over. And then something happens to you or you screw something up or you stop doing something or you get lazy or you have a bad relationship and God says, you know, we're going to start over. So there's this general theme that God has that he's going to recreate something. But he's not going to just take something that is the same and try and patch it up and make it better. He says, no, we're starting over. We're not going to just, I'm not going to give you just a, a cane so you can keep walking, even though you broke your leg. We're starting over with a fresh leg. <laughs> if that makes any sense. But the, if you look through the, especially if you move into the New Testament, the how God takes human beings from just kind of being a relational piece to him to actually taking over their original role that he gave Adam into divine creative beings with authority and responsibility. And you can kind of see this development of mankind from people that are just infants into where God expects us to be adults and to, to rule and to lead with his, with, with, with his um, not just righteousness, but with his power. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we're little Thors and Lokis, but... What I am saying is, is that on the inside, we are divine. And whatever level we're submitting to the divine, we can express it. But the just general life that we go through is, is just so muddled and you got so many obstacles in it that we get snared and snagged and stumble and trip and get injured and, and all this mess happens. And we get into places where we don't want to be. We want change. So what I see with almost every process, let's just call it a process, is that there's three phases to a process. One is creative process. That's when you're designing something, you're experimenting, you're discovering, you're inventing something new. You're exploring the space, if you will. And you realize that there's actually something that's, maybe functional out of this. Even if it's just art, the functionality of art is something we don't pay attention to. It's not, the, there, our art is more than just something that's pretty. It's, it's not just decoration. Art is actually an expression of something deep, something that's in a human being or in society or in culture. And it needs to it needs to come out in into a form that we can look at it and come into agreement with it. Art's very deep. So there's this creative thing that, you know, the, there's a spark. Then there's the execution when you realize that oh, this means something, this represents something, or it's this functional, or it's this practical, or it's useful, or it's helpful. Then let's let's make it to where it can be effective. I guess it's no good just to, you know, discover the wheel if you're going to have some little crinky wheel that you use in your farm 
we need to actually take this and, and turn it into something that society can use and adapt to and we come up with transportation and agriculture. Execution, that's phase two. Creativity, then execution. And so once you get to the place where you can like execute at something, like say the Industrial Revolution where they came up with the steam engine and maybe the internal combustion engine, and then, well, this is how you make a piston, and this is how you make a rod, and this is how you make a compression, this is make a boiler, and a flute, and blah, blah, blah. All these things that um, will turn an engine into something functional. Now we're going to make it to where it's a V8 engine in an automobile, and then we can execute it. And then the final stage is what I call just rope power. And you get to the place where uh, we've, I feel like we've reached the limit of of the execution of this thing. So we just need to make it stronger, more powerful. And this is where you get an increase in the size of an engine or a building or a facility where the you go from just a building to a skyscraper. You go from, you know, just a, a simple plank across uh, a stream and now we have a suspension bridge that channels, you know, across a, a harbor or a bay. Or we take the concept of lift and um, thrust and drag and all this stuff, and then we we go from the Wright brothers and we go into you know a jet or a rocket. We just become more and more powerful. And so when I say that's what we do, that's what we do. That's a process. And I'm giving technological uh, and historical representations. Well, this happens in our own lives. Take, for example, when we, uh, we start a program, let's say, of change. And I'm going to use exercise here because otherwise it might get a little too confusing. So when you start out and you start doing something where you're active and you're just being creative because you're trying to figure out what do I like to do, what should I do, what's going to burn calories, what, uh, what's available in my schedule. And you start to do these things and you really, you're just uncoordinated. And things are make you sore that probably shouldn't make you sore. And you're just, but you're, your body's trying to figure them out. Like you, like you go to a spin class and you can't even finish it because your rear end hurts so bad. The seat's just so hard and you're like, why don't they put cushions on these things? <laughs> How can anybody stand this? It's like sitting on a metal bar. Who can do this? People do it for an hour. Or you go out and you run and you're like, oh, my feet, my back, my neck, everything hurts. Your body's, you're exploring it. And your and your nervous system's trying to rewire. It's trying to do something. You're trying to build a callus. You're trying to do something. And then after you get used to it, and where you can like maybe sit on your bike for you know more than a half hour, or you can maybe um, do something without your knees flaring up, or you know you be getting gassed or winded, then you start to execute it, and that's when your nervous system figures out the movement, and you go in there and. You, you know, you realize that, oh, I've been doing this for, you know, three or four months. And now I don't, you know, I, I on the machine, it says I'm doing this much, but I'm not, I'm barely breaking a sweat. 
Well, it's not that you're in that much better shape as much as it is that you, you're outside of the creative process, you're into the execution, and your body is wired to this thing. It's like I remember the first time I had just been running with this little group and we had only been doing, you know, three or four miles. And the five miles was like this big round number. And I was like, I want to break through that. I want to do six miles. And it was almost like this big thing. And so finally we went out one Saturday and we ran. We did the six-mile run. And I just remembered the last two miles, I was just so dragging and so fatigued. And I got to the end and my arms were hurting. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I, I, how can, my arms aren't doing anything. And my arms were aching. Six miles. I was going from creative to executive. And now, you know, six miles... It doesn't seem that big of a deal. It's like the 10-mile mark where if I hit 10 miles, I'm, I'm aching the next day. And for marathoners, 10 miles is nothing. And for ultra marathoners, you know, it just goes on and on like that. Depends on how much of an executor you are. Your body's wired. But then you get into this place where you, um, you don't have time to do anymore. Like I don't have time to go out and run for two, three hours a day. So what I do to improve is I just go harder. So my average pace, we'll say, was like 10 and a half, 11 uh, miles per minute. No, uh, minutes per mile. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a rocket ship. And then it, I start whittling that down to where, you know, well, if I only go three miles, then I can sub nine. And if I, um, if I can run 10 miles in 930 pace, then that's really good. And it is. I think it is. But that's the point is that I've just got, I've got to go harder. I've got to exert more effort. It's force, just sheer force. So I go from creativity to execution to power or force. And in the big picture, you might call that effort. And that, and this is just part of life. This is part of any process. Now, if you look throughout history, I think a great example of this process, this three-point process, is, is war, battle. And that's why in American history, the Civil War was so brutal. Because we were lining up like it was the, you know, the 14th century. You just had the soldiers. We would come out to the battlefield and you would kind of agree, and there was this weird chivalry here where you chose a battlefield or a defendable hill and you would attack the other person or you would attack their hill. Almost like a game. And you would line up in rows and ranks and you would just march right, <laughs> right into each other and just start blasting away with your weapons. Well, the problem was is that they were... They were stuck in this execution. This is the way you do things. And, and technology had advanced to where you could just demonstrate so much power. And the, the rules of engagement were just archaic. And so you had, by the end of the Civil War, you had these ginormous cannons that could just, you could lay waste to dozens of men at one, with one blast. And you could just reload these things 
so quickly, like three or four times a minute, and just fire them off. So you're just blasting. If you've got this huge platoon of or army of men marching towards you, and they're a mile away, they're marching. It's going to take them 25, 30 minutes to get to you. And you can just unload these huge bombs on them, like two or three a minute, and you're just shattering their ranks. And then the, the, and just to top it off, their guns... They're not like the old muskets from the Revolutionary War where, you know, you got to, you know, you got to rip off a piece of, of the little capsule and ram, take a ramrod and ram it down the barrel and put a, a ball in there that spins and, and hits the target like 1% of the time. Now you've got these repeating rifles that have a cartridge in a, in a rifled barrel. And all you got to do is cock the thing and pow, pow. I mean, they're shooting, you know, like, just, the, the slow part is, like, reloading the thing. and But you can just fire these off at, like, a dozen a minute. And they're deadly accurate. And so you just have thousands and thousands of men just dropping in a matter of minutes. The power was too much. The execution was archaic. And you'll see that through the progression of war. Where, you know, after the Civil War, they, they quickly changed things. In the Napoleonic era, they realized, look, <laughs> you can't just march right into the cannons. Not if you want to lose 50% of your men. So they had to come up with, they ended up coming up, you know, with World War One and the trenches. And they're like, that's dumb too. So the that's why the Nazis were so powerful in the beginning of World War II. Is because they came up with air an air force and tanks. Guess what? We can't march slowly right towards the enemy. We'll be dead. So we're just going to go so fast. That was creative. Now I won't get into how just within four years in World War II or five years that we went through like three cycles of this creative execution power phase. But it ended with the atomic bomb. So if you want to talk about, you know, the execution of something becoming powerful, there's a great example. So I want to transition this from just like a big picture into your life. If you're doing great, that's great. This doesn't apply to you. But at some point in the future, you may not be doing so great, and it will. But there's a lot of people out there right now who want change and have wanted it for a long time, and they're stuck. And so my, my thing is, is that you're stuck in this loop. You've gotten to the point where you've, you know what execution is and you don't have the will for more power. You don't have it in you. You have a experienced perspective. I've been through the process, man. I know what it takes. I lost 50 pounds and then, you know, I lost my job and my wife and I put the 50 back on and I remember what it takes and I don't have it in me. That's real. Man, you don't understand. I know what it takes. I lost 60 pounds one time. And then I was in a car wreck and I couldn't exercise. 
And then I, I put that 60 back on. And then my husband lost his job. And now I've got to have, I've got to, you know, we've started our own business. And I've got to have a side job. And I've got to work for him. I just don't have time to work out. And I put on 20 more pounds. You don't understand. Those are real. And they're, and they're not easy. But they are unsolvable. Unless... There's a recreation because you don't have the reserves for more power. You don't have the will to go through that same process again. So in Europe, American football is not a big deal, which makes sense. We've been, they've been saying for my whole life that soccer is going to take over in America and every World Cup, we, we'll just continue to disappoint and say, next time we'll get them. And then we lose to Honduras and can't make the World Cup, right? This is American soccer. So when I was a kid, when I was in high school, we had these two French exchange students that, that came over. And this is the mountains of North Carolina. And we had a soccer team on, on our high school for like, I think it was the, it was the initial one. We'd never had a soccer team. And so we got a bunch of hillbillies out there running around on the pitch. And these are not just, you know, hillbillies have got good athletes, but these weren't the ones. They're all playing football. They want to be stars. You know, they want to wear their jersey on, 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 uh, on game day and, and have the girls that, you know, want to be their girlfriend so they can wear their jersey. Like that's, that's, the, that's the context of my high school so you had a bunch of like the the football rejects and nerds or they had liberal parents who knew soccer and so they wanted to play soccer. But we were not any good. And then you had these two French exchange students who've been playing soccer their whole life, Franck and Laurent. I still remember those guys. And they went out there and they crushed. Oh my goodness, they just destroyed, they would score. They would get a hat trick every game. It was hilarious. And they became megastars of our high school, Franck and Laurent. And they had that real thick, guttural French accent. And all the women just, you know, wanted to be around them. Unfortunately, they figured that out and they played up to it big time. And so they weren't necessarily, you know, I would call, I would call them honorable dudes. <laughs> but they could crush it on the pitch, man. And that's the point. My point is, is that we were in the very, we were in the Genesis and we were in the garden and those guys were like in tanks. They they come from a society that was well, uh, execution, they had executed soccer generations ago. They were in the power phase, man. And they just, just dominated. Now, if you took American football to to Europe, you would have the same thing happen. You go there and they would have high schools, like they have like maybe eight high schools in the whole country that would be playing football and they would wouldn't even have all the equipment. You just get a helmet on them, man. <laughs> and they would be doing the craziest things and the scores would be like, you know, fifty to two, and then the next week that the team couldn't score. And you'd be like, hey, how did they score that? They pitched it back three times before they threw it forward. You can't do that. 
but it would just be chaotic because they're all in the creative phase. Well, then they start to figure out like, oh, like the defense sees this and they just move a guy slightly to the left and they never can do that thing again. So they start to execute. You get to the point where you can't do those ridiculous plays every time. You can't do a hook and ladder like every time you pass the ball. You've got to do kind of more simplified things that you can execute perfectly every time. Well, if you took those kids to the NFL, it would be a mashing. Why? Because the NFL has mastered execution a long time ago. And so every player in the NFL are monsters. They are giants. Guys that are weighing 350 pounds plus. They're not normal humans. They're, they're, from, they're pre-flood humans. And so it's moved from execution to power. And so if you get out there and you've got the bigger, badder players, then you win. It's about effort, force. Why do you think you have basketball and the coaches going, come on, hands up, effort, get in there, dig in there. Because everybody knows what you're doing, you just have to do it harder. NBA players, you watch a game of the NBA and the court is so tiny. But it's, it's a bigger court than high school players play on. But the men are huge. It's all power, force, effort. There's a story, and I'm just going to, I'll wrap it up with a story. There's a girls' basketball team in Colorado. I don't know how many years ago it was, probably about 10 years ago. And their coach had come up with a novel way of playing the game. Now, women's basketball is any different than men's. It's just, they're just their women. But the, they've been through the whole creative and execution phase, and they're into the power phase. So the teams, the girls' teams that would win, like the national championship, were teams from, you know, these girls' teams from Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. And they were just the biggest, baddest players, the fastest ones. They could execute, but they also had the ability, the, the force, the athletes on their team. Well, this team in Colorado, the, the coach had kind of a novel way of playing, and it was within the rules, but it was um, kind of this morphed, full court, always pressing. You, you played, you concentrated your defense on the other side, on the other team during your press, not in half court. And so you would lose, they would, you know, the other team would score a lot of times and they were usually layups because the, the press would get broken. But it was, it was a very creative, complex system of defense that no one else had gone through, but they had been practicing it for season after season after season. So about his fifth season, they were beating teams by 100 points because nobody played like they did. They didn't need to have the best athletes. Now, they started getting more athletes when other you know, teams were I want my girl to get a scholarship, and so she's going to go. We're going to move to Denver, and she's going to play for this team. And, you know, that's the way it works because you need to win a state championship or you go to the Nationals and, you know, get a lot of – scholarship offers well anyway the story goes that they went all the way to the national finals they won the state championship never lost they went to the national tournament they were hammering schools even in the national tournament and they got to the finals and they were up by like 40 points on this team and something happened i i read it in the in in a in another book and it wasn't even talking about basketball but they were talking about the political aspect of sports and and how 
basically this guy was going to ruin a lot of people's careers if he kept playing that press defense in the finals. And so he stopped. He pulled the girls back, and they ended up losing the game. And um, that was kind of the moral to that story is, you know, the financial aspect of sports, the political aspect. But my, my point is this, is that this, this team recreated women's basketball. Now, clearly, they got to the point where other people were going to start watching film on them. They were going to start and understand the creative process and the execution. And then they would get to where they could defend these the chaotic scenes where it was chaos to everybody but that team. But the point is, is they created a revolution. Every time there's a recreation, there's some type of a renaissance that your life is going to go through. So even if you have to go through several phases of this negative thing happened to me and I had to fight through it and I had to suffer through it, there's always a renaissance. And the fact that you got to go through the wilderness sometimes doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for you to enter to a promised land. But the issue here is that in your own life, you've got to find a new palate. I've been through several in my life, and I've been exercising for as long as, you know, I was a kid. And I didn't even know that I liked exercise when I was a kid. I didn't know about it. I didn't know it was a thing. But, you know, it started out when I was in high school or junior high, and I just got a book, and I read about exercise, and I was fascinated. So it was more, you know, it was just like Little League in the beginning. It was athletics. And then I got into strength. I was like, wow, you can intentionally get stronger? That's cool. And then I got into bodybuilding. I was like, you can intentionally make yourself look like a, you know, an alpha? Well, sure, I'll do that. Then I got into powerlifting. I was like, my little skinny arms can lift that much weight if I do this technique. And I got into that. Then I got, of course, I got back into bodybuilding. Vanity can run a young man's life. And then I kind of got into the whole um, high-intensity athletic CrossFit world. Um, just so many aspects of CrossFit, um, which, you know... At when you know when you get into your forties, you got to be a little bit careful, and so I didn't go into it full bore. But there's just um, some cool things about lines of community, and and then lines of um, practicality, and then also what you would call um, benchmarks, where you can test yourself, and you can retest yourself, and you can keep improving. And then those of you in my latest phase has been running. Never liked running. Hated it. Thought it was the most boring, ridiculous thing ever. Like you just run it. You just fast walking and you just do it for what reason? Just so you can be miserable? And that's the way I felt. But this is my point is, is that it was one thing. It was COVID that led to running, right? It was something negative, but it led to a recreation in myself and a renaissance of something that I could do that would bring inspiration and fun to my life. And that's the whole point with exercise. I mean, again, I'm just talking about exercise here. But if you got to the place where you're like, I just don't have it in me, then you're living in a a wrong perspective. This is a a classic perspective or it's your experience perspective. You don't need to go back to the Civil War and put more men out there. They're just going to get shot. You need to come with a new technique. You need a fresh palette where you can go into the creative phase and dream a little. 
Experiment a little. Innovate a little. Don't worry about force and power and effort. You don't even need to really worry about execution. When you find something that you find somewhat inspiring or entertaining or there's a social aspect to it, so you're getting some fulfillment out of it, then you can consider execution, improving in it. I think the, here's the finality. I'm, I challenge you that being lazy has more to do with hope and faith than it has anything to do with effort. And it's hope and faith that are going to recreate. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me. This has been Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams. I will catch you on the next one. <laughs>